Blog Talk Radio. March 22nd, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness, and I am your host here, as usual, Amy Peekoff. I see some people with me over in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, everyone. Uh, if you go to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see that I have a rather ambitious list of program notes there for you today. So again, as usual, if I don't end up getting to everything, I think you'll find the list of stories to be of value. And even if you end up not having time to listen to the whole thing, I would suggest perusing the list of, of stories and all the stuff that I've got there. Uh, if you've got friends who you think could benefit from some of the information there, go ahead and pass it on to them, even if they're not podcast listeners, stuff like that. So welcome, everyone. This title, it's not, you know, so interesting, a title. I, I think Yaron won the title contest, if there is a contest this week. He has one called The Robots Are Coming, and I still have to listen to that one. I have to catch up, but that is a good title. Uh, What I've got for you is a a kind of an eclectic title and it's not even alliterative this time because I wasn't going to force it into that, but I have, I just have a really interesting set of stories to talk to you about today. And the, what we've got our speech, free speech comes up again. And I think it's going to come up a lot. So maybe I'm going to have to stop putting it in the title because it's just coming up so often. Privacy, privacy comes up quite often too, but we got some big stories about that this week. Logic and karma. Karma is what occurred to me in my mind today when I saw some of the news stories. Not the terrorism story, although some people will say because we have failed to fight a proper war against the Muslim enemy, the Islamic enemy is is probably a better way to put it. That's why we keep having these terrorist attacks. We're not fighting a proper war, and we're also not doing the profiling and the screening necessary to keep some of these people out. The latest that I have heard, if you keep going to the link that I have at the blog, you know, the headline has changed since the time that I made the program notes. It's a Daily Mail news story that they keep updating. They keep changing the headline as they learn more. Latest we've got here, four people are dead in the attack at Westminster, uh, including a police officer and a terrorist. 20 more are injured after the killer mowed down pedestrians on the Westminster Bridge, a la 
the anniversary of the attack today. Uh, I can't believe it's been that long. Um, anyway, mow down pedestrians before he's shot attacking police on parliament grounds. So he, he got probably further than he should, as far, as far as I saw from a press release from Scotland Yard, they are reassessing the manner in which they've been policing the Capitol. It was supposed to be on a high alert because of this anniversary. Uh, but it seems that this attacker got further than he would have. Maybe maybe he didn't get as far as he would have if they hadn't had what they've done. Um, when I was first looking at the story a couple hours ago, they were describing the terrorist as, quote, Asian the word Asian to us in America, I think, means something different than it does there in Britain. It's unclear whether Asian, which for them encompasses a Middle Eastern man, which is what you can see in the picture. Again, if you go to the link, the Daily Mail story, as I've got at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, um, you know, he, he definitely looks Middle Eastern. They use the word Asian to encompass someone who's Middle Eastern. So that's just their standard in their journalism to use that word Asian to include. And I don't know if that came about as a deliberately politically correct measure so that people didn't always say, oh, it's a Muslim. Oh, it's a Muslim. This is, as far as we can tell so far, Islamic terrorism. It's on the anniversary. The guy definitely looks Middle Eastern. It's the same mode of the attack. Um, and you got to assume it's the same type of inspiration. I, I just I, I look at the chat room and sometimes I get the distraction. So I'm not I'm not laughing about this terrorism at all. Uh, Jay in the chat room says if I if I change logic in my title to objective reason, I could have spork as my title. Okay. <laughs> I, again, I don't want to kind of you know force it in. I didn't even include terrorism in in the title, right? I could have put that in there and who knows what I would have come up with with an acronym but I was more concerned to put together a really kick-ass if I say so myself list of program notes for you guys versus particular title and you know sometimes I have the title I, I get the inspiration for the title along with it sometimes I don't I obviously try to give you the best that I've got at any given time so uh, like I said, don't let it go.com, get the program notes. You can read the latest, keep up on the latest with this story. The last version of the headline that I saw said that there were at least two terrorists. And then I saw Mark Natickman, from whom I get a lot of awesome news stories. He had posted an image of a Scotland Yard press release. And in that press release, they had said something about rumors of three different terrorists working together and that maybe... I guess one still might be at large. They were urging people to stay away from certain areas. So if you are anywhere near Westminster in London, you might want to check out all of the warnings in the press releases if they're not already fed to you automatically through your awesome mobile devices, et cetera, and just figure out where you're going to stay away from. I mean, maybe just, you know, shelter in place for a while until they they figure this out. This is This is horrific. I'm sure as time goes on, we're going to learn more about the so-called middle-aged Asian man who they originally attributed this to. Uh, apparently, all the politicians are okay, but there are four people dead, as we said, including the terrorist, including one police officer, and then I guess a couple of the victims. Other people are injured. 
we don't know, maybe more people will end up coming to the injury. You know, my best wishes to anybody out there affected by this attack. Uh, what needs to be done is, A, we need to get out of this idea that we cannot profile people who look Islamic or who even, you know, identify as Islamic. Maybe there needs to be profiling and dedicated background checks in order to prevent some more of this. I don't think that you, you know, enhance the idea of a civil society by not doing some profiling based on an ideology when there's a number, there's a significant number of people who are dedicated to this ideology who end up doing this type of attack. Um, we'll, we'll kind of talk about the connection between the ideology and the violence uh, with respect to one of the free speech stories in a, in a minute. I want to explore that more, but for now, you know, just, just keep, you know, just think about what is it that we could do while still maintaining the idea of a civil society. Yeah. For a while, maybe you're going to completely ban immigration from certain areas until you can, A, you know, first of all, fight a proper war against this, and then B, get the question of background checks under control. As it stands, there are too many people being inspired by ISIS and, and similar and conducting these attacks and with this horrible loss of life. And, you know, you can't say, oh, well, we don't want to profile because it would offend people or people would have their feelings hurt. Tell that to the people who have died today, other, other than the, the terrorist. Um, you know, this idea that you can do something and that the only cost of that is that you will offend people, um, you know, when, you, when you've got an actual declared war from a significant minority. Uh, it, it's, it's hard. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk more about the connection. And I'm going to want to hear from you guys as well, right? Because a lot of this comes down to what you actually think the connection between Islam and jihad terrorism looks like. Is, you know, anybody who considers themselves a Muslim potentially going to be a terrorist such that, you know, there's some sort of action that we are entitled to take to treat them differently. Um, now you could say, okay, well, maybe we're going to treat them different on a personal level. What about government? Should government treat anybody who declares themselves as a Muslim differently? Or can you say, okay, look, there are a number of peaceful Muslims who themselves are calling for reform of their religion. Not everybody interprets the religion in the same way. And so since it's not a necessary connection, we need to have a more nuanced way of dealing with the population of people in the world who refer to themselves as Muslim. Uh, so much of the disagreement on your evaluation, for example, we're going to talk about is Garrett Filders a hero of free speech? There's an article this week in which... Um, you know, an actual, uh, you know, another hero of free speech. Everybody would say Fleming Rose is a hero of free speech. He is saying that no, Garrett Wilders is not a hero of free speech. And then there's been significant debate about this article within the objectivist community. I think it comes down to what you actually think about Islam. Is Islam itself inherently an incitement to violence? Uh, certainly, you have 
people acting on it today in a way that they haven't in the past, right? And, and well, probably they have in the past, right? You know, they say how many, 2,000 years or something. But certainly, the, and really the thing that, the point that I want to make more is that people are acting on Islam in a violent way, in a way that they're not doing with the other, you know, sort of prevalent religions today. Uh, you know, any Christianity, any version of Christianity, any version of Judaism, certainly not Hindu Buddhism, you're not seeing people act violently inspired by those religions in the way that you are seeing this of Islam. But nonetheless, can we say Islam is not inherently an incitement incitement to violence. And so we're not going to treat everybody who refers to themselves as Muslim as, you know, as potentially a risk or not. This is something we do need to try to get right as this terrorist attack is telling us, and I'd be interested to hear your take on it. The number, if you want to call in and tell me what your view is, is 760-888-5817, 760-888-5817. Take the power back in the chat room is saying, what are the steps? Declare war, define victory, achieve victory decisively, come home and return to normal. This is what we would do if we were fighting this war in a proper way. Uh, because we have not fought the war in the proper way, maybe we had this opportunity, 9-11-2001, right after that, to do this. Because we haven't taken the proper steps, I would say that the problem has infiltrated itself in so many sectors of our society, etc. It's It's infiltrated in a way that essentially trying to do it properly now is like trying to repeal Obamacare, right? The Republicans, first of all, some of them aren't ideologically committed to it. But second of all, there's already been such an entrenchment of single payer and dependency on single payer medical care, socialized medicine. Why use single payer? It's a euphemism. Socialized medicine, right? We've gone so much further down the, the path and similarly, there's, you know, so many Muslims that have immigrated here and some people who are, you know, righteously saying that they do not have to assimilate to American culture, that we should avoid offending them, et cetera. Um, we're down this path where it's difficult and you have to say, okay, what is the proper solution? What does single payer refer to? So single payer means that there's one payer for medical care for everybody, and that is the government. Now, even that, it's not purely accurate, right, because who's paying all the taxpayers, but there's that. Um, okay, so go back over to don'tletitgo.com, and you can see our government's latest attempt to fight the enemy. This happened a couple days ago, so it's not in direct response to this attack at all. There may have been some intelligence that led to this it's that our country has banned laptops and tablets laptops and computer tablets on flights from major middle eastern airports it's going to apply to non-stop inbound flights from 10 airports in the middle east and africa and what a former u.s official has said about it is that in effect it is a muslim ban but it's not because it's just banning them carrying their electronic devices. Now, I remember it was interesting because Tammy Bruce was tweeting out something like, 
you know, it, it's, uh, you can just, you can check your electronics. Nobody is going to check in their luggage, laptops or tablets. It just means that you're not going to be able to take your laptop and tablet with you if you're traveling to or from these airports on nonstop flights in the Middle East. Are there going to be ways around it? Yeah, sure. No one's going to take the nonstop flight from these cities. They're going to maybe connect someplace. Um, some people were saying, well, you can do so much with your phones these days. Maybe if terrorists can commit terrorist attacks. But I think what they're concerned is what kind of bomb you can hide. How much of a bomb can you actually hide in your smartphone versus hide in you know, a larger electronic device? I guess that's kind of the, the issue. As I said, go to the article at don'tletitgo.com. You can see the list of all the airports affected and get more details there if you're interested. What I, and I assume take the power back in the chat room, would say is that if, you know, if you're going to do this, okay, fine. You know, during a certain time of emergency, yes, you're going to do this. Now, it might be if some of these countries really should be seen as enemies of ours, then maybe you're not going to have travel to and from, you know, some like in Saudi Arabia and stuff. We've seen that Saudi Arabia has had involvement in funding terrorism and terrorist attacks at 9-11. These reports come out and yet we've considered, we keep considering them allies officially. Are they or are they not? You know, what do you do in terms of a total ban versus restrictions like this? But what needs to be done is we need to eliminate this threat, A, because of the much too prevalent terrorist attacks around the world. We just saw another example in Westminster today. And then also this idea that in the meantime, we're all supposed to be giving up any sort of convenience. There are many non-Muslim people that might be traveling to and from these countries in order to do business unless and until it's not appropriate to do business or any sort of tourism there, you know, Egypt, go see the pyramids and stuff like this, then what? You're just never supposed to bring your tablets or your laptops back and forth as a temporary measure, sure, while you're fighting a proper war, while you're actually doing everything you can to get rid of the enemy. You know, I had one friend on Facebook. I have a number of liberal friends on on Facebook, sometimes from the dog world, sometimes just people I've known from high school or the past otherwise. And One said, you know, she had this whole list of things that Donald Trump has done that aren't consistent either with what people would have voted for him for or with what he's promised. And apparently he had promised to make a huge dent or get rid of ISIS within 30 days. And I haven't heard anything significant on that front. Instead, we're hearing all of this stuff about was there Russia involvement and did Obama wiretap him and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, he's not fighting the proper war either, and we need to hold our leaders accountable for this as well because they expect us to just live like this. And some people are traveling to, from these airports for fear, you know, purely legitimate reasons. Yes, as a temporary measure, fine, but not as a permanent solution. Uh, if you do want to call in and, and talk about, like I said, any of the stories that I've got at DontLetItGo.com today, the number to do so is 760 760- Eight 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 five eight one seven, and if you also want to talk, then you just need to press the one button. So yeah, so check that out. Now let's get into this article that's been the subject of some controversy. And as I said, I really I want to hear what you guys 
have to say about it because I think that there's one issue at the root of this where people disagree and to some extent it's, it's an empirical matter. Um, I think a lot of people aren't being as clear as to where that actual division lies and what stand they're taking on it. And that is what is leading to a lot of the, the controversy, but people just get really nasty about this debate. And I, I can understand that because the consequences are so huge, right? I mean, we just have seen again in Westminster today, more people dying, more people injured, more people scared um, because of the actions of these horrible, evil people who seem to be inspired by this religion of, of Islam. As I said, the headline of this piece is Garrett Wilders is No Hero of Free Speech, written by Fleming Rose, the publisher of the Muhammad cartoons. Um, you know, and that that's the thing that kind of makes him, you know, a, cr- a credible spokesman for this, you know, this issue of, of freedom of, of speech, right, is that he himself was a publisher of this so-called offensive material. Uh, offensive to Muslims. Now, um, what he says about Wilders is this, and we're getting. To, let's get to the essence of the issue. He says he's on Wilders' side, and if you guys know that uh, Wilders has been prosecuted for hate speech for saying certain things critical of of Muslims, and um, for saying also that immigration policy should be modified. And I have been supportive of Wilders, and, and so is uh, Fleming Rose here. He says, I'm, I'm fully on Wilders' side when it comes to the speech crimes he has been accused of. I am against hate speech laws as a matter of principle, but also for practical reasons. He says they are not the most effective way to fight bigotry. And we'll talk more about that in the next article that I've got for you guys. He says they tend to be enforced selectively and express a norm not a genuine will to fight bigotry. One man's hate speech may be another man's poetry. Now, whether that's true, I don't know, but we'll continue. He says, I also believe it's important to defend Wilder's right to speak out in light of the threats against his life. Nevertheless, he says he agrees with people like David Horowitz. He had quoted Horowitz earlier. Uh, Horowitz had said that Wilder's is a hero of the most important battle of our times, the battle to defend free speech. And this is, the, I guess, the thing that has inspired Rose to write this. Now, he says he disagrees with Horowitz, people like Horowitz, who see Wilders as a defender of free speech. And this is why he says, he says, Wilders has called for, a ban- for banning the Quran. He wants to close mosques and ban the building of new ones. And he has proposed a change to the Dutch constitution that would outlaw faith-based schools for Muslims, but not for Christians and citizens committed to other religions and life philosophies. End quote. So this is the reason, right? He says that if Wilders has called for banning the Quran and for the closing of the mosques, banning the building of new ones, and then also not allowing the faith-based schools for Muslims, that this makes him an opponent of freedom of expression as opposed to a champion, a hero of free speech. And later in the article, he draws upon, of course, the very crucial distinction, which is that 
you should be able to say pretty much anything unless what you are saying is actually an incitement to violence, right? That's the distinction that he thinks that Wilders is not, um, you know, that that Wilders is is not in the right in calling for this banning here. Um, He thinks you have to make this distinction between speech in general versus an actual incitement to violence. So quoting from here, he says, in a democracy, uh, this is Rose again, in a democracy, you cannot restrict freedoms based on what people think. In a democracy, you criminalize quite a few deeds like tax evasion. Now, I would disagree with that. But he says shoplifting, fast driving, fraud, and murder. He says, but you ban only words that directly incite violence or crimes, end quote. And what he's saying is that the bans that Wilders is calling for are more than that. He's calling to ban more. Now, he also talks about the fact, and I've heard this as well, that uh, Builders had justified his call for banning the Quran with a reference to the banning of Mein Kampf in the Netherlands. But now, writes Rose, in recent years, Builders has insisted on outlawing the Quran independent of the fate of Mein Kampf. Okay? Um, and then he says, by the way, that Mein Kampf was recently published in Germany for the first time since the fall of the Nazis. I do have a call. It's a restricted number that's not exposed, so I'm going to go ahead and take it. We'll see what we get. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Uh, hello. Hello, uh, who's this? Yes. Um, uh, this is Arjun from Hong Kong. Um, okay. Hello. Hi. hi. Yeah. Um, so, um, hi. Uh, hello. Yeah, so, uh, well, I'd like to first repudiate uh, Wielders. I don't think he's, a, he's an ally. Uh, he's worse than Trump and some of the other... Okay, when right you say when you say when you say ally, you mean an ally of yours? Of of liberty, of of, of um, well, free okay. speech. Clearly, uh, he can't support one kind of free speech and you know not support uh, another kind. Um, I mean, I, the Quran. I mean, it doesn't fulfill the test for um, what's the test? Uh, I can't remember the exact name. Well, we we want incitement. Uh, is it is is the Quran itself incitement to violence? No, but it clearly does not fulfill the test. I mean, it's not like it's an old scripture. I don't think, um, mm-hmm. I mean, there's many people who don't take it as a direct incitement for violence. And it's not like, you know, it's not like a pamphlet published yesterday. But I, I don't think it fulfills the requirement. I can't remember the test that's used in the United States for incitement of violence. Well, and then, so and then I guess the other thing is, right, is there'd be some sort of a time component to it, right? So what the Quran is doing is it's saying, in general for all time. And, you know, again, there's all, there's a bunch of dispute about how you're supposed to interpret this book, but there are these violent, there are, there are violent passages in the Quran that say, kill the infidels wherever you find them. And some experts are saying that those passages quote abrogate, you know, as, as they put it, and I should even put that in quotes. That's a real word that they abrogate the peaceful passages that are earlier in the Quran. No, but if you had to ban based solely on the content, then you would have to ban a lot of scriptures, uh, not just the Quran, like the Old Testament, I okay. guess, for one. Uh, I can think okay. right off the top of my head. Um, so, right. so, 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 one, uh, so let's 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 take out. So you say, okay, builders should not be for banning the Quran, and if 
he were to change his position and just say, okay, you can publish the Quran, but we still are going to close down the mosques. We're going to ban the building of further mosques. We're, we're going to change our constitution so that there can be no faith-based Muslim schools, whereas there can be for Christians or Judaism or whatever. Um, would, would that be okay in your view? Okay, so I don't know how consolidated um, Islam is, um, but certainly I'm sure that some organizations can be linked to certain things. And mm-hmm. so there I would go with innocent until proven guilty. So, you know, those that are, all of them are innocent until proven guilty. But I'm sure that there's a lot of them that are actually guilty that are not looked at carefully enough. Like in Europe, I, I read a few articles on in the Wall Street Journal, other places that there were, that the, the police clearly had reason to believe things about these people. And uh, the same with the organizations in the U.S., like the Muslim Brotherhood and some others. So clearly um, uh, some people are being le- like, are not being watched carefully enough. Uh, and um, so innocent until proven guilty there. And I think some people, there's reason to believe some of them are guilty. I'm not an expert on this, but clearly some people are not, uh, they're clearly letting people get away with this. So, but, but for example, so, if you want to have a faith-based school, a Muslim school, uh, no, but that is you... a problem in itself. Uh, obviously, um, it's only the organization itself might be linked uh, to something, and then there I would go with innocent until proven guilty. Because you know, if the organization is fund is funding terrorism or something like that, I mean that's that's a separate issue from the school. The school itself shouldn't be an issue. Obviously, the mosque itself shouldn't be an issue. So would you have any kind of special screening, Um, maybe have people monitor the content that's taught or preached in these places periodically to make sure that there is not incitement going on? I mean, you know, the kids, this this is one thing in these schools, some of these kids are told very early on that, you know, all Jews deserve to die. Uh, They won't necessarily say you must kill them. But if you're taught from a very early age that all Jews deserve to die, I, I don't know how much further the logical connection well, I, needs to be made when you're older, right? I mean, I mean, people have a right to hold that view, so that view on its own couldn't be held against them legally, I, I think. Okay. There would have to be something beyond that. Otherwise, you'd have to have hate speech laws like the, like Europe, and I'm uh, completely against that. Um so, 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 just the mere saying of you know Jews deserve to die. Okay, no, but really, what you're looking at is not so much the Quran itself, but somebody who would, in effect, hold it up and say, "Here is the reason that you need to go kill those people now." Right? And I guess there also has to be some like material, like money trail or some paper trail. Like, I mean, I don't think just the pulpit, like what they say at the pulpit, is. I mean, certain things they said the pulpit maybe, but no, wait, I'm wait, not wait, aware. wait, 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 wait. So, so you're saying somebody it could get up at any public venue or pulpit or whatever, and say, "Here's the reason that you need to go out and kill people now." But unless no, there was also no, some no, no. funding behind um, it, that wouldn't be incitement. I think that would still be incitement right then and there, that yeah. second. Yes. Oh, right then and there. Yeah, certainly. There, that, that's what the, that was. That's what I was referring to. It, I believe there's a legal doctrine. In the United States, for that, um, is it there's a test? I forgot. Is it immediacy or something? Uh, Imminence, um, right? Imminence. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, I, I mean, the application, of course, would come down to each specific case, certainly. Um, right. But I think I would be careful at what I call incitement to violence. Like, it, 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 the, there's a line there, and, and you know, they've um, extended it to hate speech, and that's, like, you know, that's not anymore about imminence. That's just about views the government thinks are ghastly, and which are ghastly, but, um, you know, um, they're protected. No now, when you said you have to be careful in what you call incitement, I, I, I don't know that you have to be careful. You know, the, the words that came to mind, I was thinking about Scalia, and, of course, it's apt to think about Scalia today because I guess what Gorsuch is still getting confirmed and all that's going on as well. Uh, but Scalia would talk about how when you're interpreting words, you're not going to interpret them strictly or liberally. You're just going to interpret them for as what they actually mean. And so, again, you know, it's not like, oh, let's give everybody the benefit of the doubt. And, yeah, that really could be incitement. But, oh, you know, we want to... We don't want to offend anybody by saying that a Muslim is inciting anybody. No, just look at it. And is it incitement or is it not incitement? Now, sometimes there is ambiguity and then, yeah, it's going to be, you know, for a judge to decide. I'm open to that. Uh, So you think it it can be quite clear, actually. It's not that ambiguous. It's only ambiguous sometimes. Yeah, I mean, really, is it are you urging somebody you know are you actually urging somebody to commit an act of violence or you know like there's, would oh, I, there's, oh, there's the there let's let's get them now sort of um yeah yeah um, um yeah i mean of course i'd agree something like that uh well certainly incitement to violence so so you're on the side of those who say that garfielders himself is not a hero of free speech because of the positions that he's taken yeah yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, and, and and you know, um, fighting incitement. I mean, I guess there could be like a reaction sort of, and then fighting the true villains would be hard, made hard because he's targeting innocents, and then they'll get conflated in the minds of the people who are like pro-Muslim. I guess. That, so it's well, kind of and then they would say really. that they supposedly have a legitimate grievance that they're reacting the to, that they think that their rights have been violated, et, et cetera. Uh, but you, but you agree though, if if you could show that what so many of these mosques do and what the schools, the Muslim faith-based schools do, if it amounts to incitement, then you'd say, okay, ban those. But in any event, you couldn't see banning the Quran. Have you read the Quran, by the way? Um, I, I am, I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the contents myself. Um, um, a friend has read it and told me about it. Uh, I haven't read it much myself. I understand it's not it's that long a read. You could you could totally read it. It's not that long. You could read it. I understand it's quite repetitive and it's not very like it's not very um as creative as the Bible. <laughs> no. No. Uh, I, I just, um uh, no, yeah. my my favorite passage to quote from the Quran is the very self-serving passage that Muhammad has about what people he invites to his house as house guests for dinner, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to behave. So it says something like, if you if the prophet invites you for dinner, don't go early unless you have been given leave. And make sure that you do not stay too long after the dinner, because if you do, you will annoy the prophet. And while the prophet won't tell you that you annoy him, I, Allah, will you know, tell you that you would be annoying the prophet if you stay too long. This is the kind of stuff that's in the Quran. It's. Self-serving, it important, and it's just hysterical. Hmm? 
it doesn't seem important enough to go in scripture uh, to me. No, so, it does not seem uh, at all important enough to go in scripture, nor did apparently there's something where he got permission to um, go after his brother's wife, you know, cause he felt lust for his brother's wife. So of course Allah had to make sure that it was good for him to do. Um, there, there's, self-serving passages there are passages um denouncing jews as descendants of apes and pigs there's you know the calls to kill infidels wherever you find them to join jihad so that you can have a glorious afterlife all of that stuff is there and then the question is do people actually take it seriously and do they use it as a basis for incitement to violence and you know when i look at this i think that there is in some people's minds, the disagreement about whether the Quran itself constitutes an incitement to violence and whether these institutions, the mosques and the Muslim schools, whether they are themselves inciting violence, maybe continuously or at such a rate that the ban is justified while we're at a state of war or something. The, this is where I think the disagreement lies. And I, I just, I don't think the question is just quite as simple as the way that it's presented in this one paragraph, you know, that the, the reason that, you know, he thinks that builders is not a champion of free speech is just because of those things that builders call for. I think you have to make, you know, the additional argument that, a lot of these mosques and et cetera are peaceful. And I'm not myself completely convinced of that, but I would like to, you know, so I point more at the institutions than the book itself. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, the book is old and, you know, uh, I mean, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, the other books can also be quite abominable, but the Christian institutions themselves were, were dragged into modernity sort of. So, um, yeah, and and on that point, actually, there was I wanted to bring some more context because today I I listened to a podcast about this about mm-hmm. Islam in America, like the history. So apparently, like you know, you know about Dearborn, Michigan, and how it's like a um like it was the place where many Muslims were or it still is. Right. Um. Yeah. So um apparently before um it was quite Americanized the 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 Muslim community there they had a prayer on Sunday instead of Friday like the rest of the Muslim world. Uh, they had Sunday school. Uh, they had um, uh, women, like, you know, were free. Sort of, I mean, of course, women are free anyway, but I mean to say within the institution, they could, like, speak up and um, they weren't segregated. And then um, apparently many of the Muslims immigrated from the Arab, Arabic world. And uh, I'm not sure about the original Muslims themselves in Dearborn. I didn't get that clear in the podcast. I don't know whether they themselves were from uh, from the Middle East. But either way, like some new immigrants came and they said this is not the authentic Islam. And eventually they took over the mosque and they, um, um, you know, started segregation and stuff. So clearly okay. once upon a time, it was, gonna, was on its way to Americanization. And it, it was reversed, uh, I guess. Yeah. And, and again, I'm thinking it's because we didn't fight a proper war when we had the opportunity. That I think this it, was earlier as well. Um yeah. What I think yeah. I, I could point to maybe is um, the uh, the whole liberal um, anti-Western sort of thing. Uh, like, you know, how after civil rights, everything got bastardized and uh, one uh, like one of the big Islamic groups was Na- Nation of Islam. And clearly then Islam became sort of like an ally of the anti-American movement. Uh, and clearly the religion itself, of course, has elements of that originally. And I guess that just got 
um, sort of um, amplified by the anti-American movement. But I don't know. I'm just speculating there. No, and that's true. And insofar as Americans are have been feeling guilty for being American, uh, I remember that that was some, something about something with Americanism was considered a trigger word on one of the UC campuses or something that even saying American something or another was, you know, potentially a trigger word that faculty were supposed to be careful of. It's in a bad way when we're there. And, and as I said, what I'm going to connect this to is the problem of, of free speech on campus. And that's in the next article that I have. Do you have anything more before we go? And you said, this is Arjun. And, well, um, thanks for oh, yeah, thanks for calling like in. You've answer. called in before, right? Uh, I think twice or thrice. Yeah. Uh, on, I can count them on my fingers. Um, but uh, on, uh, one final thing. I mean, uh, do you think, uh, like for example, like in I understand in the 20th century, the Black Panthers, who are somewhat related to the Nation of Islam, like they were violent and stuff. So, do you see that as the same problem or, or a distinct problem, um, like the domestic Islamic violence compared to? Uh, perhaps immigrants from the Arabic world who do that kind of you stuff. Know, I mean, again, I, I think that you're bringing up this fact and, you know, I've got, I see James Valiant over here in the chat room. I'd be interested from a legal perspective in, on his view of this, but the fact that if, if you're working from the Quran, which is this really old document, right? This very old document that doesn't make any specific calls. Like suppose that in the Quran, it said, in June of 2017, I want you to go and kill all the Jews or something, right? Um, suppose it said that in the Quran. Then you'd say, okay, well, this thing is an incitement to violence. And then maybe we do, you know, it's got specific content to it. But considering that it's this very historical scripture, if you want to call it scripture, I'm just kind of laughing because of the kind of passages I told. It, it's it's really a, a poor stepchild of scripture, and just in my view. But um, in I any agree. event, um, you know, scripture, this old scripture, it's it's got historical value and it's got value because we need to see what it is that we reject, right? That we we don't live, at least as you know people in a modern Western culture, we don't live in a society where we subjugate women, uh, where we say that it is okay to beat your wife. It says that in the Quran. I saw that passage too. You're supposed to beat her lightly. Okay. With a stick, but you know, just, and, and only if she's really, you know, misbehaving, but yeah, you're that. It, it says that you can something like first you, first you abandon her in bed or something and then start beating her up. Yeah. 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 So you take steps, you don't go straight to the beating, but it does, you know, say that you can, you can beat your wife. Um, And, you know, the woman only gets us like a certain percentage or certain uh, fraction of the inheritance that a male heir would get. Uh, You know, if you can't, you can't believe a woman's accusation of rape or anything else, unless you've got the witnesses, right? So good luck. You know, these women get gang raped and there's nobody there except for the guys who raped her. And what are they all going to say? They're all going to say no. And so then she's accused of adultery and she's stoned to death. Is it right? This, This is not part of a civilized society. People should read it and see what it is that, you know, we don't want to go back to the middle ages, which is what life is like in some of these countries. Um, so, it's valuable from that perspective. I wouldn't say that it itself is incitement, but I would say, you know, contra Fleming Rose, it's not completely obvious that 
banning mosques or banning Muslim religious schools in particular is the wrong thing to do, and he would need to make more of an argument. I agree with him, of course, the difference between incitement and just speech, but I don't, I'm not convinced that in mosques and in these religious schools that what's going on is not incitement. That's really the, the question. Oh, um, more relevantly then, um, isn't it the case that um, Islam, I don't know if it's directly in the Quran or if it's one, in one of the supplementary um, sort of scriptures like Hadith or something, um, mm-hmm. isn't it the case that um, um, the day of judgment will only come if uh, at, on the day that um, you know, all the Jews are sort of uh, defeated and the trees and the rocks that are hiding behind say, oh, here's a Jew, come and kill him, something like that. That's the one I always hear. Okay, but well, the tree sure and the, the rock thing I think, I think is in the Quran. The thing about... It's in the Quran directly. The, I think the tree and the rock thing is there. But if, and it's been years since I've read it. Um, the, the best person to ask a question like this is Robert Spencer, of course. Now, one of the people who had posted this article, Greg Salmeri, had said... Robert Spencer's maybe a hack or something. Uh, I don't think Robert Spencer is a hack. He knows his, his scripture. Uh, he knows all of the, the Muslim writings and, and can cite them. But yeah, well, one, I, I can't well, remember one well, way or the other whether it said specifically about the judgment day won't come unless all the Jews are killed. I know that there, that there are the assertions that Jews are the descendants of apes and pigs and that they should be killed along with any infidel. Kill the infidel wherever you find them. All that's in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not the hadith like many people say. Oh, it's not in the Quran directly. You know, it's it, it's idiosyncratic. It's, it's not idiosyncratic. I, th- at I, all. I I recall the thing about the hiding behind the rock and tree thing being there. But as mm-hmm. I said, the best person to ask about that is Robert Spencer. It could possibly be in that interview but i don't even recall it being part of you know the interview that i did with spencer i don't know that i was so concerned with whether those particular things were were in the quran or not so Mm -hmm. thanks thank you very much for your call i'm going to go ahead and, and and go on to the next story if we can so yeah i mean i'd be interested if anybody else has got an opinion on this where do you draw the line with islam between you know, just speaking about your religion and your faith in a peaceful manner versus incitement to violence when there are in the Quran clearly some calls to violence, right? Kill the infidel wherever you find him is, is a pretty clear call to violence. Uh, but you say, okay, well, that's an older book and it's not a specific incitement and we really do want to have that published. I tend to agree with that point of view that, you know, go ahead and publish the Quran that people need to actually read it and see what it says and things like that. But then, like I said, where I'm not so sure that Fleming Rose has this slam dunk argument against builders is on the issue of uh, banning the mosques and the schools, or at least I I think what I, you know, again, I I, I do want to hear your point of view on it, but I would say that at the very least there would be monitoring of mosques and these schools uh, to make sure that there is not an incitement to violence given the prevalence of jihad violence in the world today. This is just not true. I mean, you know, Fleming Rose says, look, you know, right now you can have faith-based schools in the Netherlands as long as they're Christian or 
um, Jewish, etc. But there is a difference, I think, that makes a difference today. There is an active war against jihadists, and you know, jihadists have declared on us. We don't want it, but it's it's happening, and difference might be enough to treat these institutions differently today without it being a violation of freedom of expression because of the idea of incitement going on in these institutions. If you want to chime in on that issue or on any of the others that I'm going to start getting into in the program, note 760-888-5817. James in the chat room says, kill the infidel lacks the specifics to make it a criminal incitement. A fatwa, however, in effect, kill Rushdie for this specific reason, AS, you know, ASAP, seems criminal to me if that plays a role in the devotee's physical attempt to do so. Okay, that's a nice distinction. I, I like that. Thanks for putting that there in the chat room, James. Um, yeah, it's, it's very clarifying and helpful, as, as Debbie says there. And, and that's really where I think the disagreement lies. Although, as I'm saying, people on at least on the anti-Muslim side of the debate, I have seen very, very heated argument, very impassioned and not always, you know, get, getting onto this, you know, this particular distinction. And, and, you know, again, I understand, I understand why people get so heated about this and they start calling people names. I mean, today, and I'll, and I'll ask you, you know, what you think of what I did. I actually blocked somebody on my Facebook today, and I'll explain it in a minute. But, you know, I understand why the debate about this gets conducted in the manner that it does. It's because of things like, when, you know, what went on in Westminster today. This is a life and death matter. We need to get it right. But we also, at the same time, need to act in a principled manner and how are we doing that and what do we advocate for in today's context right you know again what do you advocate for do you advocate for a hundred percent repeal of obamacare today with no phase out whatsoever doesn't that leave a lot of people unjustly in the lurch for example similarly do you just ban all muslims now even though as arjun was saying in the phone call some of the people who came here as Muslims pre 9-11, at least, you know, maybe earlier, they were generally peaceful people. They weren't anti-American. They wanted to integrate. They just were practicing their religion peacefully the way that Christians would. But now all of that seems to have changed. Why? Because we have failed to conduct a proper foreign policy. Plus, we've happened to bring in populations without properly screening them. Why? Because that would be profiling and that would be racist to profile. Yeah, being principal is a life and death matter, as Debbie reminds us in the chat room. We we definitely need to stick to our principles. One thing, you know, that any advocate for freedom of expression will remind you of is that whereas you think it's okay and safe to ban certain types of speech now, then what that does is leaves open the door for your favorite type of expression to be banned next. That's not the full argument for the necessity of, of freedom of expression, but it is, you know, sort of a do unto others golden rule version. You you don't want yours to be banned. And, and Fleming, you know, he talks about in here, he says, um, builders seem to be in favor of the First Amendment 
because it protected him. But then when he saw that it also protected Muslims to a certain extent that no, he, he wasn't as, as much of a fan. He said something like that, you know, the first amendment would have to be changed insofar as it might protect Muslims. And, and again, I think it is an empirical issue whether at least the mosques and the faith-based schools would be protected. So, um, should builders understand that the Quran should be banned? I would think so. He seems like a smart guy. Um, so maybe I, you know, I just wouldn't have as lavish, extravagant as a praise as as Horowitz. But as mixed a case as he is, he's extremely brave and he is fighting on the right side and he's fighting a horrible enemy. So I'm, you know, I tend to be pretty sympathetic to to builders as well. if you want to call in and press 1 if you'd like to as well. Let me get on to the next speech article. And this was sent to me by Sunny Lohman. So thanks, Sunny, for sending this along. The chilling dogma of anti-normalization. That sounds like a mouthful. What it turns out, normalization, it used to mean, apparently, and this is what you know, uh, Pamela Paresky is talking about this in psychology today. Normalization used to mean taking something and bringing it to a certain standard, normalizing that thing. Whereas now this term normalization is being used to refer to changing standards to accommodate something in in this context, something that you think is abhorrent. So for example, we would not want to normalize racism. And so what some of the Middlebury students were saying is that Charles Murray shouldn't be able to come to speak at their campus because if you allowed him to speak, if you gave him that platform, that would be to quote, normalize his views, which you know, they didn't even read his book or they don't even really understand what his views are, but they find his views abhorrent and they don't want to, quote, you know, normalize those views. Definitely. So um, that's, you know, this this anti-normalization trend. They say, well, we don't want to normalize it, therefore we have to ban it. And, you know, you can see here that we've got two sides of the coin, one on the left, one on the right. We have on the one side, Garrett Wilders, who says we need to ban the Quran, right? Um, And, you know, you wouldn't want to normalize Islam and Sharia, which are contained, elements of Sharia are contained in the Quran. You wouldn't want to normalize them. Therefore, let's ban it. And on the other side, these liberals, these leftists really on the college campuses are saying we need to ban certain type of speech in order to make sure that it doesn't become normalized. <sighs> Disturbing things in this article, and, and this, this is a longer article, this Psychology Today piece, I recommend that you read the whole thing. But let me tell you something pretty alarming. There's a Knight Foundation study cited by the author here that says that while high school students say they believe in free speech, they actually think it's more important to protect people from offensive words. The majority of students in the study only believe in protecting speech that no one finds offensive or that no one considers to be bullying. 
Recent events at Berkeley, Middlebury, and elsewhere reveal that by the time they get to college, students are willing to use coercion and even violence to stop people from expressing views they consider offensive, which prompted Newsweek to report, quote, the battle against hate speech on college campuses gives rise to a generation that hates speech, end quote. How's that for a title? Go Newsweek. The battle against hate speech gives rise to a generation that hates speech. It is a beautiful, beautiful title. Um, she, you know, she, she talks about this, how distressing it is that instead of actually listening to views, learning from views that you disagree with in college today, Everybody is demanding that you're in a so-called ideological echo chamber. And she writes, an ideological echo chamber, in that chamber, we become less capable of defending our perspectives with cogent and convincing arguments. After all, when a truth is self-evident, the evidence is only itself. So not only are we dumbfounded when asked to provide an argument, we find the mere question, quote, offensive. Dershowitz. Uh, not the Alan Dershowitz, but a different Dershowitz. I don't see how to pronounce it differently here. Uh, concludes from a study that liberal students and liberals in general are bad at defending their positions because they never have to, so they never learn to. Perhaps this is why the new mantra is anti-normalization instead of vigorous debate. In simplest terms, when a point of view does not fit within the already accepted narrow range of liberal views on campus, a convincing argument against the heresy will be nowhere to be found. So the expression of that heresy must be prohibited or maybe it'll, it can become accepted, right? There's that, those are the only two options. You either have to prohibit it or maybe it's going to become accepted into the mainstream. There's no ability to argue against it. And I've seen your own book or heard your own book talk about this point that you know, people need to be more optimistic about their ability to counter the irrational views that are out there. Um, you know, for so for example, we don't need to ban the Quran. We need to let people read it and see it for what it is, and we need to ridicule it, mock it, and argue against it. Um, not just ridicule, because that's not an argument of itself. But if something is worthy of ridicule, so for example, the passage that I gave you about Muhammad, you know, wanting Allah to tell his dinner guests how to behave politely. I mean, that's just silly to have that in a piece of scripture. Yeah, okay, so let's ridicule what's worthy of ridicule and explain why. Uh, but ridicule itself, of course, is not an argument. It's what Ayn Rand called the argument from intimidation. So I want to be clear about that. Argue against it. Part, part of, of course, arguing against and countering something is ridicule as well, but it has to have a basis in argument. Um, according to Rutledge, she writes, in certain fields, scholars care more about engineering the social world than actually studying and understanding it. Progressive groupthink has set in, they say, at many universities, the line between education and re-education is disappearing. And the parallels to communist re-education are chilling, as she points out here. She says, the purpose of communist re-education was to, quote, eliminate not only opposition, but also the potential for opposition. Destroy not only dissent, but even the possibility of future dissent. One method of eliminating opposition and dissent is to publicly discredit and condemn colleagues 
who engage in the unacceptable practice of working against the Communist Party. And now, she says, this chilling program is well established on college campuses in the campaign against normalization. Uh, What she says about students in college today, students are not being taught how to think. They are being taught what to think. They are learning dogma instead of the critical thinking that comes from challenging their assumptions and considering different perspectives. Unless, of course, they are conservative thinkers, in which case they are continually challenged, which is why uh, Rutledge, who she's quoting here, I'm trying to see who that is going up. This is a long piece, sorry. Um, Anyway, she's quoting somebody else. But this is why Rutledge suggests that conservative students are getting a better education than liberal students. Why? Because they are having to defend their views against other views that are fully articulated. Um, Now, the thing that I wanted to ask you about is something that she does talk about in the piece. And again, I want to give her proper credit, Pamela Pereski over at Psychology Today. One part of the article focuses on how it is that you could actually convince somebody else of your point of view, right? How is it that you could actually bring somebody around to your point of view? And she makes the point, you know, like I said, you can't defend your views and everything else. And she talks about the fact that if you're going to convince somebody else, you need to be very patient, um, that you need to actually listen to somebody else and show that you're actually listening to them before you try to answer them and change their mind and all this kind of stuff. And um, here, let me get you to that part of the the piece. Um, She says, condemning a person for his his or her views is not an effective way to change minds. What do you do if you want to change minds, she says? Um, She says that Daryl Davis, who's the author of Clandestine Relationships, spelled K-L-A-N, Destine Relationships, knows. Uh, He's got a podcast that's produced by FIRE, Freedom and Individual Rights and Education, and Davis describes how he uses civil dialogue to change minds. He says you challenge them. You don't do it rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And I've also heard Steve Simpson talk about this. He says, Davis, a black man, was curious about what would make people who don't know him hate him because of his skin color. So he embarked on a project to understand members of the KKK, employing tactics that have been empirically validated, and she's got a link in there if you want to check it out, but seem to be disappearing on many college campuses today. Davis discovered that when you engage in conversations and allow people to say whatever they want while you are actively learning about somebody else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. Says it was important to Davis that the Klansmen know that they could say anything in front of him and he wouldn't be offended. And he says, today, however, this is Davis, people are so afraid to have conversations because they feel that they have to walk around on eggshells or they might offend somebody. How are we going to progress if somebody is afraid to talk to you? He says, there's no benefit to hiding the truth and burying things we don't want to deal with. So then my question for you is, assuming this is true, and I I tend to believe that this would be true, that if you really do want to convince people that you need to have a patient discussion with them and let them fully air their point of view, however irrational it is, 
how much do you want to deal with that yourself? How much do you really want to go out and convince people and stuff? And, and I'll give you the example of what I did earlier today. I had published the article on my wall on Facebook about the terrorist attack in Westminster. And someone uh, came on, Larry something. Anyway, he said something about, oh, yeah, this, let's keep letting in all these people and their genetics are going to mess us up. So he was saying it's the genetics of Muslims that are making them violent and destroying our way of life and our culture and killing us. In effect, it's genetics. He, he used the word genetics. So then I wrote back, you know, I'm trying, I'm trying to model this, right? Um, I said, what do you mean by genetics? And then let me, let me just find it. He came back with the following. So I'm going to navigate to Facebook. If you can indulge me. See, I can't even stay off Facebook for the length of one show. How's that? For the length of one show, I can't even stay off Facebook. I had to go over to Facebook. Really, I'm just using this as a rationalization to check all my notifications on Facebook. Okay, so this is what he says. Because I asked him, I said, you know, what do you mean by genetics? And um, he, ca- he called me a snowflake in this. Oh, yeah. So he says, sorry, I will rephrase. He says, these beautiful, unguided, sadly uneducated lesser of the species that commit terror attacks will continue to do so as we civilized people allow them to walk all over us. It's sad they are apparently mentally challenged and need to be talked to softly for fear of triggering their killer mentality. We should all feel bad for these misguided terrorists that bring pain, fear, and suffering to the population. Poor lost souls, pray for them. How is that better for you, snowflakes? Hmm. Now, all I had asked him was what did he mean by genetics, which had been in his earlier comment. He's deleted that comment. You can go to my wall. Don't at, at a, I was going to say don't let it go.com. My wall is on Facebook, uh, and you can read this for yourself. But he had deleted the earlier comment that referred to genetics. So, But I infer from this sarcastic response that he did mean determinism, genetics, because he's talking about you know, they're inherently mentally challenged and everything else. So I uh, actually blocked this guy from Facebook. And my question for you is, should I not have blocked him? Should I have kept him on in the spirit of open debate and really tried to go back and forth with him Socratic style? Or when somebody, already, you know, as soon as I ask one simple question, comes back with this and calls me a snowflake, am I entitled to go ahead and block this guy? Am I still in the spirit of this? The guy says alt-right, I guess, maybe. Oh, I think I've got Debbie. Debbie's going to tell me whether I was good or not. So, so Debbie, what do you think? Was I entitled to block this guy? I definitely think so, um, and here's why. It, the fact that he responded with that kind of rage only to a inquiry on your part is, is the thing that tells me he's not interested in thinking about the issue in, in a, um, in an inquisitive way. Right. You, you know, I, cause, cause I am a hundred percent on board with this idea that if you want to convince people of something, you do not begin by attacking or insulting them. That's the best way to guarantee that they will not adopt your view because it puts them in a defensive position and then they're just going to mostly fight, uh, fight to defend themselves because they're like, you know, they, they feel attacked. And that's just at least 
Um, that's at least the default. And some people have a lot of self-control and they're maybe not going to fall into that. But for the most part, that is absolutely true. And they'll just go pull out their tried and true, like, you know, name calling or just whatever, whatever their normal defenses are. They'll just go back to those and they'll sit and then they'll tell themselves after that. Yeah. See, this is why fill in the blank, atheist, objectivist, whatever, this is why they're such crappy people because look at how Amy just attacked me, you know, or whatever, or Debbie or whoever. But you, you know, ask, so asking questions, that's the perfect approach. Just get them to talk about what it is, clarify what it is they really think, listen to them, and then therefore far more likely to listen to you. But you did that. Now let me, it, let, it, me, let me reveal something though, right? Let me reveal something. And I've actually been known as somebody, the transparent admission. Let me, let me give you my transparent admission of the day. So in my mind, all I had wanted from him was for him to confirm that he actually did mean genetic determinism. And then at that point I was willing just to block him. I was going to block him as soon as he said he was a genetic determinist. Um, okay. now in, 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 no, well, that, well, that's what I had in my mind. And in, in part, I had that because my past experience with people who make those comments is that the next thing they're going to do is all the angry stuff that he did next. Now, mind you, he went and did it himself anyway. And all I had yeah. asked him was, what do you mean by genetic? Or, you know, it was a very brief question. It might even been briefer than that. I don't remember exactly how I put it or I, something like, what do you mean genetic? Or yeah, something like that. And <clears throat> He, he never answered it in the least bit politely, so he made it much easier for me to go, yeah, I'll do this. But I have this impatience with the genetic determinists. I, I just do, and maybe I should be more patient? I don't know. I mean, I, because I don't think his response to your query was, was, uh, was appropriate like or proportional or whatever you want to say, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess like, I I just, I think that there's a pretty wide range of mistakes that can be held innocently. Um, and, and, and it's very confusing, I think, to a lot of people, even to people who are knowledgeable somewhat in the field, um, to get thrown off by certain aspects of neuroscience and, and genetics and to not understand correctly the way that things like intelligence work and that it is not is that it is absolutely not genetically determined i mean there's no question in my mind about that like and and i've actually been studying the subject of genetics and and taking courses on it so i mean i can tell you 100% confidence there's no one who's who's really immersed in that field who believes that but right. but to to someone it, it, assuming that he's not you know immersed in the world and knowledgeable about molecular biology then to him it may seem a lot of people hold those kinds of ideas of genetics in a way that's a lot more simplistic. Like it's just sort of a template, your DNA that just determine that, that that gives you everything that you have. And you could even observe things that in, some things in the world, like people come from a common culture and it mm-hmm. also just happens that, that because they come from the same geographic region, they have a lot of similar behavioral norms. And, and someone could look at that and, and then extrapolate from it that it's a genetic thing and, and it's not right. just the fact that they, they all were, in, they were sharing a culture and, and that sort of stuff. So uh, 
I don't so so in so in in general so. in general you think I should try to you know be more patient now this guy like I said he made it easy because he did come back and and do something totally rude and uncalled for and so then I blocked him justly but if he hadn't if he had come back and explained a bit about the genetics in a polite way maybe I should have engaged right if he had in a polite way I have a hard time imagining that you would have blocked him I mean would you have if he had come back and said well you know, I just see people like if he kind of came back. With I, th- I think you're right. I think I think you're right because in my mind I was thinking, okay, if he comes back with predeterminism, genetic predeterminism, I'm going to block him. But really, if somebody came back and was polite about it, I would have a hard time doing it. Even like I like I said, I revealed to you that that had been my thought that I was going to do that. He came back and was rude, and so that. But I think it is. It's the tone that people yeah. come back at me with that gets me sometimes way more than the content. It, it is mm-hmm. truly, I think. And, and, um, and it's, and it's not, um, it's not irrelevant. The tone is very relevant because in order to convince people of things, they have to have an active and inquisitive mind. If someone doesn't want to think and understand, they're not going to, and there's, you know, and right. so if someone is just like sort of dropping fire bo- rhetorical firebombs all over the social media, that person is not interested in considering that their understanding of something might not be complete and listening for more perspectives on it or open to getting more information. That person right. is not in that mindset, and it's a waste of your time. Definitely. Uh, Debbie, I've got to go on to other stories. Do you want to hang on for this, what I would call rocket ship ride that's going to be through the uh, the rest of the program notes, or you just want to listen on the uh, call? Oh, sure. I'll hang on. Okay, so you'll you'll hang on with me? Okay, so here I go. Yeah. This Because I've got, I don't know if you checked out the program notes, but I've got a whole bunch here. So uh, the next thing I got is actually the thing that made me think of karma for the title, which is that North Korea conducted a failed missile launch i guess what in the last 24 hours or so and the question is is this karma not in a real truly mystical sense but just in the very broad sense of cause and effect a communist regime is going to have a difficult time conducting you know a proper technology you know technological program of creating missiles that actually work right um yeah so a little bit of karma when we see North Korea try to have a missile launch, a missile test, and have it fail. It, I, it just <laughs> makes you makes you feel the warm fuzzies, right? Um, yeah, it just makes sense. That's how it should be. <laughs> now, <laughs> the um, the other two stories, and I'll just skip around a little bit, that made me think of karma are these. One is California's bullet train may have received its final fatal fiscal hit and they say yeah they say that apparently where they were going to try to fund it through this so-called cap and trade market and they're saying that all all the air carbon dioxide included has gone out of the cap and trade market and here's the quote (laughs) from from a report just hours before the report was issued, results of the state's latest cap-and-trade auction of greenhouse gas emission allowances, the only source of ongoing bullet train funds, were released, and once again, it produced almost no money. 
They had a nine point yeah, they had a nine point nine five billion bond issue that voters approved nine years ago. It was on hold for years because of lawsuits. Project managers have searched so far in vain for other sources of money for the sixty four billion dollar project. So Brown and the legislature gave the project twenty five percent of the cap and trade auction proceeds and they're trying to do other stuff, but they've been not able to muster the funds or the votes. So I would say that that's justice. And then there's one more fun little tidbit, and this is from Tammy Bruce's website, Shifra over there. I just, I love her sense of humor. Sad news, says the headline, Illinois fails to pass measure making Obama's birthday a legal holiday. Oh, man, that's devastating. <laughs> this is what I'm calling karma, right? The, the measure failed by six votes, and it would have made August 4th a legal holiday in Illinois. Um, and Schiffer writes, but cheer up, Obama bots. August 4th is also National Chocolate Chip Cookie Day. So, you know, <laughs> that's what you can celebrate. Wow. Instead. So yeah. I just, is, are you thinking the same thing I am, which is that, like, somehow Obama was the one who initiated this? Like by means of his by means of his connections with the Emanuels or whatever, like yeah, that, I'm that certain. He's, he, it was his idea to make his birthday a holiday. <laughs> Redmond MTB in the chat room is saying definitely click on the link because the photo of Obama is priceless. I agree, you've got to look at it. As I said, all these program notes. I'm not going to get to everything over at DontLetItGo.com. It is worth looking at all of this stuff. So that that's the karma. Uh, in terms of privacy. I don't know if you saw this headline this week. You're up in Silicon Valley. A judge apparently okayed a warrant to reveal who searched a crime victim's name on Google. And it was an order for, quote, any or all user subscriber information in a town of 50,000 people. So that means that they're doing a search of 50,000 people, no probable cause, no particularized suspicion to see if they've searched a particular name. They're saying this is the most expansive one that we've seen unconnected to U.S. national security because this is not U.S. national security. Um, In this, it's like whoever searched one particular victim. Yeah. That's uh, definitely not good. Yeah. I mean, so, if you want to completely eradicate crime, all you have to do is lock everyone in a padded cell with video cameras totally. all over the place. You know, that'll totally. guarantee that no no one will be murdering anyone. So, so you know, again, uh, every everything that you have searched for in Google, apparently it's retained and it's potentially searchable <laughs> by the government without a warrant that is based on probable cause and particularized suspicion. The question is, if this warrant goes up on appeal, is it going to be overturned? And some of that is going to depend on how is Gorsuch in relation to Scalia on privacy and all of that. For people who want to be reminded of what my solution is to this problem, it is to get rid of the so-called third-party doctrine. I explain all of that in the link to Don't Tread on My Metadata, if you go to that article and look at it again. Uh, In terms of a technological solution, people working on the encryption side, Gail Parker, a listener to the show, she um, shared with me this EasyCrypt. Have you heard of EasyCrypt? It's this new 
end-to-end encryption that supposedly allows you to use your existing email address with their end-to-end encryption services. And it looks fairly user-friendly, although I got a tiny bit confused when I was looking at it. I mean, this is really the challenge is to make end-to-end encryption super easy for everybody to use, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't heard of that, but that sounds good. Yeah, but you know, again, end-to-end encryption, you're not sharing with a third party, and so what can they do to you? Right. Uh, they can yeah. ban. They can ban end-to-end encryption, <laughs> and then and then when you go through your regular email, they say, "See, you're voluntarily sharing your information with a third party." <laughs> no, exactly, and uh, and you know, they they talk about the fact like if you store your email on the server, then somehow you're less entitled to think that there's a reasonable expectation of privacy in it, that if you don't store it, I mean, who doesn't store their email on servers? It's ridiculous, you know? So, yeah. And, and, we, and I, I mean, I, I've even heard about government people saying like trying to prevent, trying to make technology companies put in these back doors so that they can get in and get access to the information. So like they're trying well, to, no, make yeah, they, they actually want to ban, they want to ban end end encryption. And again, what I think we should all be entitled to is the digital online equivalent of a house that is locked with a key that only we possess so that the government has to come to us with a proper warrant. Now, it's not that we are, quote, entitled to it, like the tech companies have to make this available to me. And no, you know, if it's not able, you know, you, if you can't make it super user friendly, OK, but I, I have to think in my mind that there's got to be a super user friendly way to have this equivalent, if the tech companies make it and if we buy it at a price that they agree to, okay, then we should be entitled to have that for ourselves just as we have our houses. And, you know, Supreme Court 2014 recognized about, you know, in our cell phones, for example, we have more personal information about us in our cell phones than we do if a police officer walked all through our houses anymore. We really do. Yeah, absolutely. It's um it, it's craziness. So that's the privacy piece from and then uh, a little bit on logic. There's this great article from the Atlantic. Uh, Benjamin Chase, who I follow on Facebook, he shared this article from Atlantic. Atlantic has just so many good articles, and this talks about the progression from Aristotle's logic in the Organon way back when all the way through Euclid and all the different steps in between up until you get Turing and the making of the computer. So how it is that Aristotelian logic helped to create the computer, even though when people are doing logic and mathematical logic and everything, they didn't have the computer necessarily in mind, but somehow this bizarre field that nobody thought was connected to reality at all made the computer possible. That's one of the really fascinating things. So if people really are interested in that topic, looking at how this field of mathematical logic that nobody thought would be connected to anything in the real world, how it, how it ended up making a computer possible. That's awesome. And then towards the end, you might be interested in this Debbie because it talks about um, like neural networks and Mm -hmm. how the understanding of neural networks is going to make a computer that induces possible i don't know if that's possible but you can look and you would be better to evaluate they go in you know to speculating about artificial intelligence which is where i tend to lose them i'm perfectly comfortable with the idea of computers performing 
all sorts of varieties of really complex deductive logic, but the, the inducing, the actual learning by the computer that's truly inductive, that raises just a red flag in my mind. Maybe that's a topic for a future show because is that something that you'd be interested in looking into and talking about? Yeah, well, yeah. Actually, I, I read a book called Consciousness and the Brain, and it's very dense and challenging material. But he did talk about that in, in the book. The author is a French neuroscientist named Stanislaus. I'm sure I'll pronounce it wrong, but Stanislaus, Stanislaus the Haney, the, the the something like that. Okay. Um, anyway, it's an amazing book, and he did talk about that. Uh, he didn't talk about it in the sense of something developing self-awareness. You know, in like the and being like uh, uh, conscious in the way that we are, but just in the way of uh, com- computational efficiency being significantly greater, and okay. it's computers being able to to dramatically perform more effectively than uh, yeah. they do now. I mean, it, it it's just amazing <laughs> because they they talked about in the article, and I I'm not going to take the time to scan through it right now. The the number of actual circuits that are in my cell phone that I hold in my hand right now. I, I swear they said like 3.8 billion or something, or is it million? Which sounds. Um, I'm in your phone. Did you say? Yeah. Or yeah in my phone. Is circuits it? In? Yeah. Because I have I, no you know, now we have these tiny <laughs> little transistors that have like so many of these little circuits that they, you know, were part of the original computer. Um, at first, you have one that's got like five circuits or something, and now we have yeah. these tiny little transistors in our phone. A billion, yeah. Selfishness in the chat room says billion. Um, it is. It anyway. The article is super interesting. I highly recommend it. But it just shows you the value of logic. Of course, logic is valuable for our human life as well. But just the the chain from Aristotle's logic all the way to putting this computer in my pocket is is fabulous. Um, that's always the way that technology happens. I mean, it, that you can see that type of thing happening over and over again. It's, it's the norm, actually, for things to develop from one kind of domain into a previously unanticipatable, unanticipatable, uh, unforeseeable application. And that's just the way that, that it always goes. There's a wonderful book by someone called Stephen Johnson called How We Got to Now, and he talks about, for instance, the way that the invention of the telescope – or, no, the, the invention of the printing press led to in, unforeseeable innovations in optics. And, um, oh, so yeah. That, that's just yeah. one of many and, 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 you know, here's, here's the thing, right? This is, and this <clears throat> goes back to something that I had wanted to talk about last week, and we're not going to have time to do it justice here. This issue of spontaneous order that, you know, there's, there's this knowledge problem. If you try to have a central planner – in charge of all this stuff, then people would not be free to pursue, you know, their rabbit trails or whatever of thinking about the technology behind the printer and then get to the stuff about optics, right? Um, and no central planner would be able to foresee the types of connections that entrepreneurs have made. And perhaps that's a good segue. There's um, an article that Brian Yoder linked to and it was that good schools, good schools are not the secret to Israel's high-tech boom. What they're saying is that the secret is the entrepreneurial spirit that is inspired in 
Israel's people. And it's that entrepreneurial spirit that we need to, to look at. Uh, on the karma topic, Boom Supersonic has raised $33 million to build the fastest airplane for passenger flight. So this is in stark contrast to the California bullet train, which <laughs> they can't seem to get the money for, right? So Boom Supersonic gets the money. Now, of course, it's order of magnitude less, right? Um, the bullet train would need 60 some odd billion is what they said. And this is 33 million. But still, we see that private industry promising awesome technology is able to raise the money, which is, I yeah. think, good I'd take a bullet karma. plane over a bullet train any day. <laughs> Definitely. Um, also in the program notes, I've got a link to Adam Smith on the absurdity of protectionist trade policy, which you can check out. That's also from the Libertarian Reader, which I've been using for my Libertarian Theories of the Law class. I'll leave people to go ahead and check that out. <laughs> when I posted that excerpt from Adam Smith that you can find there in the program notes. When I posted that, I had some people debating about capitalism and hasn't capitalism been shown to not really work and et cetera. If people need a reminder on how it's been government intervention that's caused the financial crisis and not quote capitalism, I've put a link to financial crisis and the free market cure, which is John Allison's book. And then the final thing that I've got is the Oxford comma. The Oxford comma apparently made all the difference in a case about whether or not some workers would be entitled to overtime. And that was an article sent by Brian Yoder and Mark Natickman. If you are a grammar and syntax and punctuation sort of uh, aficionado, you might enjoy reading that (laughs) article. Otherwise, Go ahead and check out the rest. Debbie, uh, thanks for hanging on. I'm going to talk about 18 minutes next week. That's uh, Begley, and I think maybe you'll be interested in that as well because it ties back into the productivity stuff that we've talked about in the past. But um, Thanks, Debbie. Thanks for for hanging on and and chiming in, and I'll talk to you next time. Everybody, if you want to continue the discussion, go to don'tletitgo.com. You can follow me on the various social media, including Instagram, if you like a eclectic collection of pictures, kind of whatever is inspiring me at the time. Get you there. I will talk to you next week, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 Pacific. Take care.